Well, good morning again. We are starting a new series. Uh, we've finished Colossians. Um, last week, you had the entire letter of Jude. So this week, we are starting the book of John. And uh, I must admit some fear and trepidation as I begin this uh, series. Uh, I should feel that way every week, and I probably do. But especially with John, it's, it's such a transformative uh, gospel, and it's, it's done so much, and most people that preach it, preach it for years, and we're going to try to do it a lot in a lot shorter time span, and by that necessarily means jumping, not over things, but it's just going to be challenging. Uh, so here's my hope. My hope is that you will be reading the book of John on your own as we go through this process together. Um, as I introduce the series, I'm going to have to do just a little bit of detail and background before we launch into this morning's message, uh, but we will, we will be looking at the first five verses in just a few moments. Um, but who, who, wrote, who wrote the book? Who wrote John, right? I think most of you know John, right? That's why it's called that. So we're done with that part. Um, actually, there's a lot of people who try to come along later and dispute. Also, there are different Johns in the Bible, and uh, there's a lot of ink that has been spilled over this, and when you research it and you study it, the good news is you come out with this realization that John the disciple, John the apostle, John the beloved wrote this letter, wrote this gospel. Um, now, there are four gospels total, right? This is often just called the fourth gospel. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? The synoptic gospels, we call them that because the three of those gospels are very similar in content, different lengths, different audiences, and John is... is just a little different, and we're going to start to see those differences throughout this series. Um, but in, in this amazing gospel, what I hope you'll realize is we're going to see Jesus. We're going to see him fresh and, and beautifully. Um, John knew him well. Uh, again, as I mentioned, John was the one whom, whom he is said to have loved. Uh, that's uh, tricky. We'll unpack that as we go. Um, I also want you to know that John wrote this primarily to evangelize, it's often called, he's often called the evangelist, but he's also writing it to disciple. If you think about the upper room discourse in chapter 17, he's giving a prayer uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to his heavenly father, Jesus is, but he's saying that the disciples would be strengthened and that their, their relationships would be secure. So there's discipleship, but he's also writing it clearly for evangelism. And then lastly, I just want to note that he, uh, just as we move into the discussion, uh, the dating of this letter. When was it written? Uh, once you decide, okay, I, I believe John wrote this, all the scholars are late, but when? When would he have written it? There's this really important thing that happens in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. Like Jerusalem goes through a really tragic event with, it, with destruction, and, and John doesn't refer to it, which makes people wonder, did he write it? just before that, like in 60 or 65 or later. And I think that's probable that he wrote it in the year 80 or 85, toward the end of his life. Uh, the other apostles would have already, many of them had been martyred at that point, if not all of them. And he's left, he's writing it from Ephesus. And what he's doing is he's writing this to kind of shore up the church in this really, really difficult time. He's writing this as an encouragement uh, against some of the heresies that are on the, on the rise, and he's writing it for you and I this morning. And so that would be my last thing I want to say before we read this. Uh, if the words that we're about to read are true, if Jesus is real, 
if Jesus preserved John for this purpose, and if Jesus brought you into this room this morning, then is it possible that no matter what you're feeling right now, no matter how poor of a job I do, that Jesus could use this for you this morning? That's our hope. So let's read together the first five verses from the book of John, and then we'll launch in. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to this amazing information that your spirit not only brought to us this morning in written form, but you promised to illumine it to our hearts. Lord, I know that happens in varying degrees. We can't understand it all at once. Maybe for some of us, this is the first moment we've ever heard these words. Maybe others have studied this many, many times. But we know Spirit, we know Jesus, we know Father, that you are present in this passage and in this place. And we pray that you would open up a a vista of growth for us as your children. And Lord, if there are those here this morning who do not believe, we pray they would begin to hear your voice from this passage. Amen. Um, I don't know how many of you I've told this story to, but uh, when I grew up, probably from the age of 10 until like in RUF, that's how long this lasted, I wanted to be a cartoonist. Like I just kind of had this fantasy of being, you know, like Calvin and Hobbes, all those, right? That's what I wanted to do. I thought that's what I'll do. It was kind of a, a fantasy, like things weren't going well. You know what? I'm going to be a cartoonist anyway. And I'll just sit at my home. I'll draw cartoons. I don't need people. Um, and here's where it started. When I was 10 years old, I was at a book fair at Charles Haskell Elementary, and I picked up the 10th anniversary of Garfield. Like it's a little black, those little odd-shaped Garfield books. And on the back were the first nine covers. And I just, it had this kind of feel of like, this guy's successful. And this cat character has been around for a long time. So I began to read Garfield, and I just believed that this would be a wonderful pursuit. But what also happened around that time was I had to find out everything I could about Jim Davis, the the writer, cartoonist of Garfield. And then later, I discovered Calvin and Hobbes, same thing. I had to learn about Bill Watterson. I have to know how he does this process. How does he create this amazing art, this writing? And have any of you ever done that? Do you find yourself wanting to know, like, how does this writer create this work, this musician create this piece? There's something in all of us that that when we embrace something glorious and beautiful, we want to know how did it happen? And I want you to know that's very, very normal. What's not normal is to not do that. What's not normal is to say, no, that's, that's, that's just how it is. And here's, I'll prove it. Like, um, if, if you came into my home, no, let me word it this way. If I gave you a painting, maybe it was like, or not me, your parents passed down a painting, okay? Bear with me. And it's like a Rembrandt. And as long as you knew it's a Rembrandt, and someone came to you and said, guess what? That's not a Rembrandt. It's a fake. How would you feel? Well, I don't care. It's the same painting. It's beautiful, right? No, because I thought I knew who painted it. 
I was told this story, and now you've just told me it's not true. There's something in us that wants to be connected to the source. Now, obviously, you'd also be disappointed because of the money. But um, anyway, let's get past that. John is telling us something that we need to hear. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, predominantly Matthew and Luke, give us the origin of Jesus at his birth, his birth and then his genealogy going backwards in various forms. But John starts farther back. Where does he start? In the beginning. Like, what does that even mean? I don't know, but that's something, right? It's like there was a moment where there wasn't a beginning, and then there was a, a start, and things began. And he's going into this crazy metaphysical place to tell us about Jesus. But what he's getting at is this. Because Jesus is the author of all things, of all life, Christians, we find our true meaning in Jesus. So what we'll find this morning, what we'll find throughout this series is, if you want to know yourself, if you want to know this world, know Jesus. Learn of him. Go toward him. So uh, this morning we're going to look at this. We're going to look at just three things and it's going to be hard to cover, and it's a very hard passage. I was talking to my wife about it earlier in the week, and she's like, I've never understood. Like, it's hard. So please, give me, a, like, a pass. Like, okay, if I don't do very good, just pat me on the back and say, there's always next week, brother. We're going to look at what is the logos. By the way, you can pronounce it logos or logos, but that's the Greek word for word. What is it? Who is it? And why does it matter? Okay, that's our outline. So what is this Logos? Uh, John says this, in the beginning was the Word. And what he's saying is Jesus was from the beginning, right? And we're talking about the importance of that, but I want to just start with the concept that he begins with Logos. Because what he's doing, and some of you have have heard this before, uh, is he's trying to draw in, it seems like, two audiences. Uh, there There are seasons of history where people would say John was writing to the Greeks, And then later people would come around and say, no, no, he's writing to the Hebrews. And it's really both and. And I would argue he definitely is writing to the Hebrews because when he says in the beginning, what does it harken back to? Genesis. This morning I was in my office and what's unusual about this morning versus normal is it's quiet. But this morning I got to hear Marsha Carnes teaching Genesis 1 to all these kids and then talking about Jesus. I started taking notes like that, that. That would work in the sermon. And actually, by the way, just a plug for Gospel Project, they're starting at the beginning, so maybe adults should jump into these classes too. It's really good material. But here's John saying, let me tell you about the beginning. You know, in Genesis, when God spoke everything into being, he's saying, in that beginning was the Word, was the Logos. Now, for a Greek, that would mean there's an energy there's a principle, there's a, a unifying force. Uh, I, the word logic comes out of that. It means there's an explanation for things. There's something behind things. That would be a general view. Uh, the Stoics understood it to be the principle by which everything exists. Later, there was a, a philosopher who was also a Hebrew named Philo, and he was a first century Jew influenced by Plato who began to sort of tie the idea of logos with the idea of God, that somehow God uh, either used this force to create, but he, of course, was not talking about Jesus at that time. And then John picks up with this concept and says, let me tell you how everything was made. 
by the divine logos. I can't decide how to say it. Logos or logos or logos or logos. But nonetheless, John is saying there is a reason behind everything. And I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I want to say this, because this is why this first point matters. We've sort of, in our culture, from my perspective, we've split. The science-minded people who, let me say, are often not believing in God. I mean, I don't mean that all scientists don't believe in God, but those that are in that camp would say, no, no, we can explain everything by science, right? Uh, Stephen Hawking wrote, wrote this. He said, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. And that's, that's one of the things that made him great. He was brilliant, and he had this passion to explain everything, which you should do. I think oftentimes Christians will come along and say, no, no, I believe God made the universe. I believe in Jesus. But we sort of live in these two worlds. We're like, that's our religious thing, but we sort of have adopted views that the world really operates on its own. And so when we think of our relationships, our finances, even science itself, we, we have a tough time tying that back to Jesus, right? And so one of the goals, I think, of, of, of fulfilling what Hawking was saying is maybe we recover that Jesus is the author of all things, and that will free us up to actually explain more and understand more. Because at the end of the day, if you can't explain where that little ball came from, you know, no matter how many billions of years, no matter how tiny you make it, science can't fully explain where did, how does something come from nothing. And it's very bold of a Christian to say, I'll tell you, because we can't explain it either other than just saying, I believe it. And it's a faith act. And here in John, he's telling you, listen, Jesus was in the beginning, okay? Now, there's like thousands of lectures that could come out of that that would be far better than mine. But I, I want you to just note this. Have you noticed in our culture the pressure to not believe that? Um, like you go to a poetry class and, and someone's like, here's a poem. What do you think it means? And this idea that no matter who you are in the room, no matter if you've studied it for years or you just read it for the first time, your opinion matters. And the poet that wrote it walks into the room. He's like old now or she. And now let me tell you what it means, right? Our culture would say, well, that's just your opinion. That's what you think. No, no, I wrote the poem. Like, this is actually what I had in mind as I penned those words. And so John's giving us that, and we need to be able to have the humility to say, okay, let me give you a chance. Now I'm going to agree, as I read this letter, this, this gospel, that this is true, what might that do for my life? What might that do for the areas that are, are broken, that aren't working? To know that the author of life was in the beginning and made everything about me. So who then, let's move to the point number two, who is the logos, the logos, the, someone just bail me out on that. I think the software really ruined me. There's a Bible software called logos, but I always thought it was logos. Anyway. Thomas, I don't think Thomas is here. He would correct me. You know what Thomas would say? It doesn't matter. Choose one. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, I'm going to choose Lagos. Okay. He is God. Look, look at the scripture. In the beginning was the word. Okay. Right now, I think we have this concept that both the audience members, the original audience would say, okay, yes. And the word was with God. That's kind of dangerous because if you're Hebrew, wait a minute, 
it's not just a force or an energy. It sounds like a, a being. It sounds like there's actually this thing. This, what is that? Um, but if you're Greek, what? There's a God? Like, that doesn't work. And then he goes even farther and says, and the word was God. And that's what John wrote, and that's what John meant. He didn't mean a God or like a God. He wrote it very clearly in a very shocking way. Here's John, a monotheist like the rest of us. There's one God, and he's saying, but there's this interpersonality. There are different persons within the Godhead. And the one that created all things, who we know to be Jesus, is God. Right? Now, this concept uh, existed in the Old Testament in many different ways. Of course, we know that in Genesis uh, when God says, let, let us make man in our image. There's this hint of a trinity right there. In Proverbs um, 8, the writer tells us, the Lord possess, the personification of wisdom, uh, in verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth, he goes on in verse 27 or 30. Then I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. In verse 31, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So even in the Old Testament, you have this realization that there's this second person of the Trinity involved intimately in the creation of all things. And so who is this person? It's Jesus. And we see um, in our passage, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, <clears throat> why do, what's the difference between point two and point one? Point one, what is this logos? Point two, who? What matters in point two is there is this second person of the Trinity whom God the Father loved. I struggle with that. Have you seen It's a Wonderful Life? You know that, like Joseph, like the beginning where like a nebula is talking to a star? That's kind of what my brain, I don't know what to do with this pre-creation stuff. Because like, is, a, is God like a nebula? You know, and so because of the lack of my imagination, I tend to reduce this concept and just move beyond it. But um, we all can express and understand what was going on uh, yesterday at the game. I went to the OSU game yesterday, thanks, Tidlands. They did the cam, the kissing cam, never came around to Emily and I. But then they did the Simba cam. Did you all see the Simba cam, those of the game? So I guess in the movie uh, Lion King, the monkey, who's the, what's the monkey? He holds up Simba like this. And so then the Simba cam, you're supposed to hold up your child. And they, and they would flash, so usually it was a dad, hold, I mean, at one point it was like college kids with their beer. And everyone did that. It's a pretty telling. That's a great illustration right there. You could spend a whole sermon just on that. Um, but the, the, the cutest was, the, well, there were two, just little babies. But one just kind of sitting there like. But the other one was bawling. Like, you woke me up for this. And put me in the air, this chubby face. But yet there's something in all of us that, that just felt like, yes, a father with a child. It's beautiful. I remember one time I walked into the zone and there was, Bonnie was doing something with lots of little kids. I can't, 
even remember if this was a, what it was. It's a class, gymnastics. But it was the weird, she walked up to me, my daughter, Bonnie, and just, you know, hugged me and we're holding each other. And then the other kids started doing it. And I just didn't know how to handle that. You know, I'm like, yeah, 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 you too, and, and you too. Um, okay. I mean, I wanted to kind of explain to them, you know, you all are special, but she's really special. There's something about being the beloved. And Jesus is the Father's beloved. And we just, if we're not careful, we, see a, we let the artwork of bearded, older Jesus, or the fact that this is pre-creation, but if you can take those images, those realities in your own heart of understanding what that would even be like and know that that is the intimacy that the Father had with the Son. And that love, one, one commentator says, that love and that amount of connection by nature creates. And it's from that that springs forth all of creation. And love as this driving force through all of creation and what I think is so fascinating about the Gospel of John uh, is in chapter 13, right after the washing of the feet, they returned, and I've already alluded to this, and the disciples looked at one another, and they're trying to figure out who Jesus was referring to when he talked about being betrayed. And it says, one of his disciples, comma, whom Jesus loved, comma, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Another way of saying it was resting in his bosom. Now, you could say, who would write that? Why would you say you're the beloved? And I, First of all, let me say what's the most amazing thing. For someone who had that connection with Jesus, you can tell it's completely gospel-centered because he wants you to experience that. He's writing this letter, this gospel, so that you and I can get to that place with Jesus. He's not doing this exclusive thing like back away. Rather, he's showing the kind of relationship you can have. And later when Jesus prays the high priestly prayer, he's saying, God, I want the fellowship that you and I have to be available to my disciples. So who is the Logos? It's Jesus who wants you to know the Father in the way he knows the Father. And in our passage, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That Jesus is not, he, he is a, he's a living God. It's so hard to talk about. You always are afraid of like, let me say this wrong. But he's real. He's touchable. He's tangible. And from him springs life. This is what's different about the old other views of Logos, Logos, sorry, are those tend to say it's sort of like here's the force and here's the thing. But John's saying life springs out of, out, of, out of Jesus, that you, the things in you that are human, come from Jesus. And this is what I want to transition to. Why does it matter? Why does any of this matter? Um, because I think for too long we've reduced Jesus to being a leader of a religion. And rather what John is saying is no, no, no. He's the creator of your soul. When you like things, it's because Jesus, right? Like, just start thinking about your life. When you have problems in a relationship, Jesus is the answer. And so often I think Christians will do things like we'll go to other sources and we kind of leave Jesus alone and we forget to go to him primarily. 
through prayer, through scripture, through fellowship, through discussions with other believers, we, we, we forget that Jesus made us and is intimately familiar with every ailment you have, right? I want to remind us, we went through the book of Colossians uh, over the summer, and there was that amazing chapter where um, the Apostle Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Okay? So Paul explains Jesus made everything, which is what John's telling us as well, right? We need to meditate on that. We need to recognize that. But then Paul has this transition moment where he says also, uh, he's the firstborn from the dead. So the very act that made everything from nothing, that very person who did that, Jesus, is also the one that redeems. And so that when the fall happens, when darkness comes in, it is Jesus who not only created everything in the beginning, but now he's rescuing. And Paul says he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And in our passage, I think that you have a hint of that. Of course, John's just getting started. But in verse 5, he says, The light, referring to Jesus' light, it shines. That's the first present tense verb. We don't want to get too much into what that means, but so far, he's been telling us about what Jesus has done with the act of continuing. He created all things. Of course, he sustains all things. But intentionally, in verse 5, John is saying, and right now, Right now, as much as you think you're alive and you feel whatever you're feeling and the lights and the air conditioning and the hunger and the boredom, Jesus is alive. He is real. And he shines in the darkness. And so we don't come to a a lifeless Savior who's waiting for us to find him on a page. We come to the living God who sits at the right hand of his Father who rules and reigns over the kingdom that is currently active and present. And you are his saints if you are in him. And he shines in the darkness in two predominant ways. One way, the darkness in my heart, like my redemption. His death and resurrection redeem me and bring life back to me. And then two, he sends me into the darkness of the world with the purpose of shedding light, right, wherever we go. And that's what Christians are to do, right? So this is the goal as we look at the letter of John, is to come back, maybe for the first time for many of us, to the beauty of Jesus. Um, I want to give you a story I've told many times. Um, I'm going to tell it again, and I won't go as much into detail yet. But I, I, one day, uh, my dear wife said, you know, you ought to take this, the boys through John. They're going through the BSF, right, Bible Study Fellowship. Why don't you read it with, okay, I'll do, you know. Here I am, like an RUF campus minister, like, kind of like feeling like John scares me. Um, and why, does it, why would I feel that way? Because, and maybe some of you feel this way. When you hear, oh, this thing, this writing has had such profound impact, and then you read it and you don't feel that impact, what happens? Something's wrong with me, right? I'm flawed. And I remember going through John with them a chapter at a time, 
But when I got to chapter 6 on the bread of life, which one of the things that John is famous for are the I am statements, it just did not, like I didn't get it. I felt in the story, Jesus says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And that's easy to understand, right? No, it's not. It's hard. In fact, it's so hard, the crowd, they left. Like they were like, you fed us recently from nothing and that was amazing and we came and we found you, but you just said some things that make us just want to just, we're leaving. He like shrunk the church. It's gone. And everyone's like, whoa. And so I remember reading that and praying. And it was a very hard prayer because the risk of hard prayers is what if you don't get them answered? Then you, you have questions about yourself. It was like, Lord, please help me understand what you meant. And I actually remember praying to Jesus, like, you're the one in the Bible. Like, I'm talking to Jesus because of the presence of his spirit. And as I prayed that and reread it, and this is, the, the kids had gone to school. Like, this is later that morning. I just felt like the scales began to fall off my eyes. That Jesus is real, and Jesus is alive, and he loves even me. And he loves you. And there is some power in this book of John that I pray you will not just show up. Don't be offended by what I'm about to say because I do want you to come. But if we just come in and hope that in 30 minutes we can get what the depths of this book are, of the gospel of John, and it just, it's a lot of pressure on me, all right? I want you to be reading the gospel of John. And I would challenge each of you. It's the, it's the kind of place where if you, if you don't know Jesus, you're not a Christian, a lot of times that's the first exposure to John. People have handed it out to non-Christians. He's called John the Evangelist. Jesus is accessible in that environment. But if you've been a Christian all your life and you come to it, again, you have to have the humility to say, Lord, show me, because this is hard. Not because I can't understand the, the, the contours, but because it seems like there's so much depth here, so much room for knowledge of Jesus that I, I need, but I need the Spirit to open me up to that. And so as we kind of close out this discussion with some of those um, challenges, I want to just read you from John 7, where Jesus does this kind of interesting thing. He shows up in, in verse 37 to this feast. At first, you know, they're already starting to kind of get after Jesus. And uh, they ask him, are you going to the feast? And he's like, he didn't really, he kind of doesn't go. He's not going to go with them. And so the next thing they know, they're at this feast. It's the last day, and there he is. He stands up. He kind of surprises them. And he cries out. And I looked up the Greek there, and, you know, I want it, I want it to be like shrieking, but that's not what it was. But it's definitely not like, can I have the floor? You know, it's sort of this interruption, which is surprising to me, because that takes a lot of boldness. He stands up in a place where you would think he wasn't wanted, and he Cries out, ready? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that audience in that room wanted that. And you want that. You want rivers of living water. I promise you. The question is, where are you going to get them? Is it Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we want rivers of living water.
but we run after broken cisterns. We run after images on a computer screen. We run after ideals in our mind of the way a marriage should work or bank accounts. Father, we, we run to anxiety. We run to drugs or alcohol. We run to sports. We run to everything but you. And Lord, we run to those things knowing they're empty. And yet, you've called us to run to you, to the divine one who made all of life, the very God of very God, the son who created us and gave us the light to shine forth. Holy Spirit, I pray as we move into this series that you would change our hearts, grow our hearts. For some of us, maybe there are people in this room who don't even know you yet that maybe this would be that moment, that opportunity for them to hear your voice, the good shepherd. Jesus, all of this, we pray for your glory. We trust that you will do these things because you have promised to do them. Amen.